So this podcast is a story about becoming a university teacher. It is called Living by the Proverb. The Introduction There seems to be a strong link between developing our identities and storytelling. As humans, we strive for coherence, and this coherence is found in stories. This is an experimental paper telling a story about developing a brave and authentic self as an educator, teacher, in higher education, by incorporating creative pedagogies into higher education. This paper reflects on the challenges faced by new educators and those suffering with imposter syndrome. With an aim to celebrate the imperfect self as opposed to enacting unrealistic expectations, the purpose of this paper is not to favor creative teaching pedagogies, but rather to persuade educators to bring their world vision and lived experience to the classroom, acknowledging that they are important factors that shape teacher identity. It seeks to provoke reflection and hopefully some laughter and supports you not feeling lost in the demands of the performative frameworks within which we act and try to create niches of freedom and agency for ourselves and our students. A beginning of sorts. Germany, the early 2000s. Renault Wingo, Granada Red. Don't you dare call my car pink, right? My eldest niece was sitting in the back and the five hours car journey was painful to the teenage brain. I cannot remember how the topic came to be proverbs. Anyway, I was telling my niece that my best friends at university who came from different parts of Germany had never heard about 90% of about 90% of the proverbs I used. So I wondered if this was specific to our area in Saxony, but they indeed insisted that it was a family thing. So we came up with two-sided four pages of A4 just proverbs. Some of them are a bit nonsensical, such as German proverb, Grete Hahn auf die Mist, ändert sich das Wetter oder es bleibt wie es ist. Literal translation, if the rooster grows on top of the dung heap, the weather is going to change or stay the same. Explanation, which pretty much makes fun of all the farmers' wisdom my farmer granddad used to throw at us given half the chance. Others were a little bit 18 rated, so German proverb. Hätte der Hund nicht geschissen, hätte er den Igel gefangen. Literal translation. Um, if the dog wasn't busy doing his business, he would have caught the rabbit. Explanation. Let's just say it translates into no regrets. The significance of stories. Germany, the glorious 80s. Some of the proverbs are related to actual family stories. So, for instance, when someone did something especially silly, that person was proclaimed to be as silly as Scheffler's pig. Now, Scheffler was a local farmer whose pig was staying with my granddad's pigs for a while, well, to make more piglets. Anyway, apparently the dog spooked the pig and it took off, fleeing towards the gate. One side of the gate was open, the other side of the gate was closed. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, it fits narrative causality very well. The pig, of course, decided to squeeze underneath the closed side of the gate and became stuck, upon which the gate had to be taken off the hinges to free the pig. 
Hence, silliness is proclaimed to be comparable to that unfortunate decision made in panic. Now, at this point, you might have imagined a fair-sized piggy bum being stuck underneath a gate, but as our brains work wondrously, simultaneously ask yourself what all of this has to do with creativity in higher education. Well, German proverb, mach die Augen auf und lass den Geist ein bisschen leuchten. Literal translation, open your eyes and let your spirit, mind, shine a little. Explanation, you'll figure it out, just have a think. Wait, that wasn't meant literally. Before reflecting on creativity in higher education, I must make a detour via identities. Learning and identity negotiation are intrinsically linked, as authors have argued in the past. And so is teaching. Therefore, translating creative practice into teaching in higher education is ultimately part of this identity negotiation, an act of becoming or emerging with our creative selves within the teaching environment. These stories we tell about ourselves and how we tell them inevitably influences who we are, not just in private life, but also as teachers in higher education. There is a body of research establishing a strong link between developing our identities and storytelling. As humans, we strive for coherence, and this coherence is found in stories. We are made of stories. Joe and Didion said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Storytelling holds a significant role in learning too. During my undergraduate degree, we had a professor who, if you so want, taught in a very traditional old-fashioned way, often no slides or very few. But he was a brilliant storyteller. I remember one time he was explaining the medieval worldview, stating that people believed demons were everywhere. And he pointed around the lecture hall and saying, and they were there and there and there. And over a hundred students kept turning around following his hand gestures. He was so passionate and a charismatic storyteller that we as learners were just drawn into the world he created with his stories. He managed for an hour to a week to bring medieval times alive. He held the power of creating a story so alive and colorful that it captured the student's imagination. Is this creativity? Muriel Rukeyser said, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. So maybe stories are the place where we come together with our learners, where we find a common ground. Moon and Fowler suggested a model for storytelling used in teaching, differentiating between six different categories of stories. However, for me, the most notable consideration is that they suggest storytelling as a category of stories itself, since the act of storytelling holds value beyond the content. Jürgensen picks up on a similar argument with exploring spaces of storytelling. The author portrays storytelling as a creative act, and I quote Jürgensen 2018, Perhaps the one thing above all that characterizes spaces of storytelling is the freedom to appear, do, and experiment with the world, to recognize difference and plurality and the possibilities of playfulness and creativity that difference and plurality might entail. 
The idea is to lay out spaces for storytelling where researchers and teachers can create, make and remake their stories and, of course, develop them to become full-bodied craftsperson and professionals. That was Jorgensen 2018. So to do this, to have the confidence to experiment, risk failure and become a full-bodied craftsperson in teaching needs the consideration of another aspect of our identity negotiation and maybe our propensity as academics to seek perfection and overachievement. Our own fear of failure and the relentless little voice in the back of our heads telling us that we are just not good enough. Of identities and perfection. Germany, still the 80s. The fashion isn't getting any better. German proverb. Autofahren und singen kann man nicht erzwingen. Literal translation. You cannot force driving and singing. Explanation. There are things, no matter how hard you try, you might be able to get a hang of, but you will never master. Your abilities or lack thereof, your idiosyncrasies are all part of you. Accept your limitations and embrace your gifts. There is an ongoing debate about people in academia suffering from imposter syndrome at all levels of seniority. It is easier for us to accept our weaknesses and shout mea culpa before we are even able to hear someone giving us a compliment. But part of this accepting the whole self is also accepting abilities and skills. Is exercising professional self-acceptance an act of self-care? and a step towards building resilience? What do you think? Lesson one, accept thyself, thy whole self. So my mentor, after a successful teaching intervention, asked me if my approaches are transferable or if they are intrinsic, intrinsically linked to my being meanness. Now, imagine a very long pause, you know, that seeing my whole life as a flashback pause. Now, there was a challenging question. Was my mentor right in calling me an unconscious expert, according to Broadville in 69? Isn't that a strange term? Shouldn't I be there, truly, fully, wholly there when I am being expertly? This labor-giving exercise led to a journey of becoming conscious about expertise yet again, and engage in reflexive practice. Mills in 59 states, you must learn to use your life experience in your intellectual work, continually to examine and interpret it. In this sense, craftsmanship is the center of yourself and you are personally involved in every intellectual product upon which you may work. That was Mills 59. So again, the topic of craftsmanship comes up. So being reflective, we acknowledge that social researchers cannot be separated from their autobiographies. However, my contention is that this does not only relate to social researchers. Teaching is an intellectual product, as described above, and we cannot separate our autobiographies from what we think teaching is, learning is, how a teacher or a student ought to behave. This is at large determined by our own experiences and norms and values. The authors also state that there is no coherent definition 
or agreement across the board on reflexivity. Whilst reflection is thinking about something after the fact, I understand reflexivity to be something more integrated into our practice. It is reflecting whilst we are doing something and then changing the elements which we want to improve. So to me, reflexive practice is being a mindful educator, being in the here and now with my learners and being aware of myself in this situation. So indeed, my understanding of reflexive practice is closely aligned with Schön's interpretation of knowledge in action. As the craft of experiencing a situation and being able to react consciously to the situation under consideration of consequences. Hence my wondering if being a mindful teacher is being a reflexive practitioner. Nielsen and Kasemi identified five characteristics of mindfulness inherent in all definitions of that concept. These are present-centeredness, attention and awareness, external events, ethical mindedness, and cultivation. Whilst the definitions are from a Western perspective and simplified for the purpose of this paper, there are some elements that I would indeed link to reflexive practice. The first, attention and awareness, refers to the ability to focus on selective aspects of reality and consciously determine which of these should be included in the momentary awareness. Present-centeredness describes the habit or act of becoming aware of what is happening in the here and now, in the present moment, according to Nielsen and Kasemi. Both these behaviors are closely linked to reflection and action. In my opinion, we ought to be able as educators to be aware of the situations we are in, to react in the best possible way. Ten years ago, UK. I remember when I tried to record my first lecture as a video, and during the process I realized just how much I rely on all the nonverbal and verbal feedback from my learners. The subtle art of nonverbal communication has a significant impact on how I am providing a lecture. So if I tell a story to refute confusion, if I add an ad hoc activity just to draw the attention back to the matter, to being present is crucial to in teaching situations. And so is the awareness of outside influences, external events. Are we aware of the environment we are teaching within? Are we aware of the outside influences on our learners? or how our own social environment has shaped our interpretation and understanding of the world? The fourth factor, cultivating, is particularly interesting as this one focuses most strongly on the links of the internalized reflections with the outside world. So in developing compassion and empathy, and even the aspiration to become an instrument of social change as a way of becoming intentionally situated. I reference Listen in Kasemi. Ethical mindedness. One can say that mindful consciousness is about being acutely aware of the importance of integrating ethical guidance into daily life, 
without the sort of conscious ethical mindedness, the risk of causing harm to each other and the surrounding environment is clearly heightened. That was a direct quote from Lisson and Kasemi. So with a stronger emphasis on inclusion and accessibility, being mindful in the moment, what pronouns are you using when you're teaching? And being mindful when designing learning and teaching material and environments, this aspect of mindfulness to me appears to fit in very well with being a reflexive and reflective practitioner. So my summary of reflexive practice at the moment would be that of professional mindfulness. But how do we as educators get there? Mills suggests keeping a diary to analyze our thoughts and how we position ourselves within our profession and ourselves. I have always written reflective diaries, not always regularly, but I try to catch things like pivotal points, struggles, joys, and analysis of situations that were maybe a bit challenging. So one of the habits I found useful was every time when planning a new seminar or a course, I would go back to reading and write planning documents, taking a more critical approach to this, analyzing reasons behind my decisions for one topic over another, or for how I aim to tell a story. This would be my next step in becoming more intentionally situated within my teaching practice. However, this exercise becomes near to impossible when you are how it so often happens, given a course that was developed and taught by someone else prior, with little notice. So the first iteration of this tends to be familiarizing ourselves with what is there before we can truly take ownership of that teaching. So what is a strategy that works for you in these situations? The compliance trap. Germany, still the 80s, the political tensions are rising. German proverb, wer nicht wagt, kommt nicht nach Waldheim. Literal translation, if you don't dare, you will not get into Waldheim. Translation, no risk, no reward, or no risk, no fun. Explanation, a politically biased proverb, Waldheim is an infamous German prison, which was used as a political prison in East Germany. The tongue-in-cheek proverb has a serious undertone. So no matter how much you think you are risking right now, it's still not bad enough to get you into this prison. So how realistic is your level of fear? Some authors argue that creativity is intrinsically linked to risk-taking. So although the authors contest that there is not enough empirical evidence to support a theoretical connection, However, other authors argue that the risk we take in being creative is a social risk. So feedback from my Creative Pedagogies for Active Learning course, which is part of our MED in academic practice, highlights the fear of these risks, of being reluctant to implement creative and active learning strategies because of the fear of not being taken seriously or laughed about. So is it indeed risk-taking to do something new in your classroom, to run a session where you cannot predict the outcome? We cannot predict the outcome of any lesson, 
But if we stick to specific structures, we can at least predict how the students behave within that environment. But do we know if the student's learning was deep learning, was lasting learning? Also, are we doing something that is out of our comfort zone, something we are not sure about? The discussion at this point could easily move into reflections about neoliberalism and intrusive nature of metrics and impact measurements. To quote Sutton 2015, the conclusion is that it is only at a micro level that neoliberal production ideology can be challenged, may initially appear dispiriting, but as Merleau-Ponty argues, there is no situation without hope. Within higher education institutions, there remains space, albeit limited, to develop more progressive transformative pedagogies. That was Sutton 2015. COVID-19 lockdown and the pivot to online learning has disrupted much of the traditional practices, whilst the performative frameworks appear unshaken. So for the purpose of this paper, as an individual academic with a complex multitude of demands on our time, we are not able to change this exoskeleton of our work environment. However, we can practice freedom within these structures. We can embrace emancipatory practices in our pedagogy and foster our learners' agency as much as our own. And some of the current developments of academics gathering virtually and supporting these efforts emphasize this point. UK 2013. During a conference, when speaking about an example in which I was authentic with my students, sharing my own exam angst I had as a student and what strategies helped me, one of the colleagues said that I was a risk taker and not everyone is like that. To, to me, that was a strange label to be given yet again. And you can see a theme here. People will give us labels and there is not really anything we can do about that. However, this dimension of risk taking is very closely related to our own professional identities and how much we want to challenge our identities and what would happen if things didn't work out. And this is where the next proverb comes in. German proverb, ist der Hof erst ruiniert, lebt sich gänzlich ungeniert. Literal translation, once your reputation is ruined, you can live entirely free of worry. Explanation, this proverb and lesson is all about stop rules. Stop rules are a concept from social psychology and are rules of engagement we are usually taught growing up. Stop rules or stop filters are reinforced, according to Runko 2014, by punishment, reward, or ignorance of creative behavior, and thus can teach a child to grow or stop their creative endeavors. That was Runko 2014. So for example, my nephew in his art class created a really, really nice paper cut out of a crocodile with a movable head. However, the primary school teacher punished him with poor feedback because he did not follow instructions about just drawing a crocodile. He went above and beyond and was punished with a strict stop rule to his creativity. To some degree, we as educators in higher education are surrounded by stop rules. 
So my strategy is to explore the freedom within these to create learning spaces that enable the learners to break through the learned behavior of what they think they should do and as an educator take agency of our teaching identities. How much have stop rules influenced developing our creativity as child? How much does institutional culture, does we have always done it this way, does that's not what we usually do, does friction between students as agent of their learning and performative culture, does our academic probation, does our annual review create stop rules for you? So how much risk-taking is involved in you professionally, personally, to be creative? Is this an actual or a perceived risk? What do you have to lose? Lesson two, never let fear stop you from doing something. And these are questions that keep coming up for me as well as my students. Indeed, once a senior manager, when hearing about one of my teaching techniques, complained to my line manager, asking them to tell me to not do what I had planned because of what people might think. Now, that is a strong stop rule, particularly as the senior manager had entirely misunderstood that activity. However, I in turn became really defensive about my teaching identity. I can and will always, and I emphasized always, defend, justify and evidence every single thing I do in my class. I will have concepts from social psychology, developmental psychology, educational science, etc. at infinitum as my posse coming to my defense. So yes, I am confident as a teacher. I can justify what I'm doing. And I have been doing this all my life. Again, that's a story for another day. However, if you are just starting out, if you are not confident, find your support network. Use scholarship to gather evidence for learning and teaching methods. Have a chat with colleagues from across your institution. Join an online academic coffee clutch like the Wednesday evening um, hashtag LTHE chat or hashtag academic chatter on Twitter to run ideas by other educators. Don't go into the situation your own. You are not alone. And if you have an idea that you always wanted to try it out, but you were worried about your colleague's reaction, have a cup of coffee with your friendly academic developer and pick their brains. Fear of failure. Crossing time and borders, German proverb. Wo gehobelt wird, fallen Späne. Google Translate. Where wood is chopped, splinters must fall. Explanation. This proverb is all about not being scared to fail, not being afraid of mistakes, and is probably the one I have heard most often from my granddad. My family never questioned that you were going to make mistakes. In fact, the attitude was that if you never made a mistake, you never actually tried something properly. So the question always was, what do you do once you failed? And maybe this unlearning of fear of failure um, was the reason for putting myself out there and trying new things. So I applied for a job as an English teacher in kindergarten 
during my undergraduate degree. And this was a time there was no such thing as an early years language curriculum or material for it. And my internet had just moved from dial-up modem to flat rate. Mm -hmm. So I had to back borrow and steal ideas wherever I could find them. And I created a curriculum and all the materials, including a board game myself. So one of the moms later told me that her child was counting better in English than in German. So when I spoke to my sister about this, she said she does the same. She jumps into the deep end happily and then begins to panic because we panic, we do occasionally. So maybe, just maybe, this is not because we are both risk takers by nature, but because we had unlearned that fear of failure. And every single time we would speak to family about our fears, they eventually emerged, when they eventually emerged, the answer would be German proverb, du wächst mit deinen Aufgaben, literal translation, you grow with your task. Explanation, learning is in what we do with a failure. A well-known adage. One could argue that there is learning to be had during failing, learning about ourselves, about the process. What I believe is more important, though, is to unlearn that fear of failure and to learn risk-taking. Learn that failure is an inevitability. The proverb was meant to address anxiety around failure. It came with a culture of family dinners or long breakfasts during the holidays, such as Christmas, Easter, birthdays, where three or sometimes four generations would sit around the table and recall the best fails of each person, basically like a real-life YouTube channel, roasting each other's failures, telling stories of belonging. Has one of your family members ever put a hat into the fridge in the evening only to spend half an hour searching for it the next morning? Have you gone to school coming back home because you thought you forgot your backpack only to realize you were wearing it upon seeing your reflection in the window? Have you gone bill sticking during election time and accidentally swallowed a pin, ended up in A&E and then had to eat sauerkraut because the A&E doctor said the strong fibers of sauerkraut will wrap around the pin and protect your gut from becoming hurt. Where are you supposed to keep an eye on the chicken in the stove while everyone else was making hay and each time you check you would eat a little and once everyone came in for lunch there was just some bones and the legs left. Have you forgotten to unplug the electrical lawnmower when checking why the plates got stuck? I spare you the details but the A&E doctor said it was good luck the plates were new and the fingertips could be reattached. Or accidentally put sugar instead of salt in a soup because you didn't label the glass jars. Get an oven mitt stuck in the door handle and dinner for seven people, all already sitting around the table, ends on the kitchen floor, spice with glass shards. Trying to heat milk in a filter coffee maker. Need I go on? One of my favorite failing stories was the following. I grew up on a farm turned small holding. My granddad was famous for using ropes for everything from staking the sheep temporarily while moving the pasture fence to using them in a pulley system. Now, my uncle had stored an old wardrobe in our attic, which still had a door and pulley system in the wall from having been a hay storage in the early days of the farm. Grandad decided instead of lugging the heavy wardrobe down the stairs, it's easier to let it down with a pulley system and the famous all-purpose ropes. All said and done. Well, the wardrobe was swinging gently halfway down the building 
then Grandad realized the rope was too short. Not to worry, he'll hold that, giving the end of the rope to my uncle. I am just going to get another one and be extended. After all, there were more than enough ropes around. They are very useful, you know. Will's granddad was on his way, and my uncle held on to the gently swinging wardrobe, the veteran rope that had held dozens of sheep, fixed and carried loads, reached the end of its line and the end of its life. I cannot really remember a noise, but the crash as the heavy wardrobe landed on a corner and folded it into itself, irreparable. Needless to say, the story was told and retold in much detail, hilarity and reenactment, quite regularly. Lesson three. Fail, fail often with all your passion and then fail some more. So maybe the key to reframing the fear of failure is to understand that it's all about learning and failing is part of learning. Some research indicates that these family stories support an individual's development and resilience. However, not everyone has the opportunity to grow up in a multi-general or in a safe home. So how can we, in our roles as educators, create safe spaces for failure so our students can face their fear of failure and learn effective strategies for how to develop failure response. I am only human after all, Reckon Boneman. Conclusion. And maybe this is where we need to begin with a pedagogy of care. Meeting our imperfect, high achiever selves and our sometimes insecure and sometimes confident learners with unconditional positive regard and move forward from there. Make failure part of the process and enable our learners to learn how to fail forward so they can truly take agency of their learning and their journey. Introducing creative pedagogies can help with this process. Whilst I haven't alluded to the vast body of literature around creativity and its concepts, one of the ones I like to share and implement as a practical starting point is using creative learning and teaching as it's defined by Jeffrey and also Jeffrey and Woods. I really like this concept because, because it provides a tangible framework. So we as educators can work with it. The authors define creative learning and teaching as having four characteristics, so as being relevant, providing ownership and control, and resulting in innovation. Innovation in its most simple form is the ability to apply knowledge in a different context. Relevance I always understood as the real-life context. So how does what I am learning relate to the overall picture? How does it make sense to me and my life as a learner? beyond the classroom, whilst ownership and control are about the student's agency in the learning process and the ability to make, to make educated decisions about how and how much they engage at various points during their learner journey. Of course, this can be done with a variety of methods and approaches to our pedagogies. I have made use of Play-Doh, balloons, latex-free mind allergies, 
Lego, games, and creative writing to enable the learners to engage and grasp sometimes really abstract concepts. I've created comic strips, flowcharts, interactive websites, posters, and even PowerPoint games. But there is nothing wrong with just telling a good story or just having a chat with your students. The important bit is that we are authentic as educators and embrace our own background and experience. Therefore, instead of defining creativity for the reader, I conclude the thought paper with a question. What does creativity mean to you? So thank you everyone for listening to this very first podcast. Um, it's my first try, so be gentle. I hope you enjoyed it and please leave comments, tips, suggestions. And if you want to share your subtle, if you want to share an ideas paper, if you want to read a piece of work you have done, if you want to have a discussion with a colleague or interview someone, let me know, get in touch and use this space.